the, Bi- the Bible Bitches podcast, where we talk about biblical and religious topics from a feminist, comedic perspective. <laughs> and I'm here with the one, Sarah E. Hoff. An awesome agnostic living in L.A., California. Yes, yes, I am. As of as of this moment, I am living in L.A., California. And I am here with uh, Laura Barclay. You all know her as Bearclaw. Ah. And... <laughs> And she lives in Louisville, Kentucky, as we all know. She's a Baptist minister and a therapist. What? <laughs> Go on, get a girl. Yeah. Oh, I'm getting it. <laughs> and we are here today to talk about the Antichrist. Dun, dun, dun. I've heard good things about the Antichrist. I've heard that... Uh, that he or she, I'm going to go ahead and be inclusive on this. Yeah, it's probably he. Probably, probably he. We're going to probably have a lot of personal baggage. I yeah. I have a lot of past experiences, past, past trauma. Yes. Re the Antichrist. Yeah. Because it yeah. was taught to me as like an actual truth. Like this oh, is an sure. actual human being yeah. that will come down. And the main concern um, is... What is is the millennial like that seven year reign? So do yeah. we get raptured up pre, mid, or post that seven year reign? Or Tribu- yeah, yeah. Mid-trib. I think it's called millennialists. Yeah, it's the pre. We're actually gonna get into it. Oh, like, cool. Yeah. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of us. No, I know. I'm excited too, Sarah. I am. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because as traumatic as it is, it's also super weird. Uh, we spent a lot of our teen years wondering who's it gonna be, who's gonna be the Antichrist, what's happening. When's it going to happen? Uh, when's the end of the world? And then Kirk Cameron comes along with the Left Behind films and just really put it all out there, like, for us to see. You guys, I know Kirk Cameron. You know, he's he's the new guy on the block for Christian <laughs> Christian media, Christian <laughs> film. Very popular. He's, he's so hot right now. Genre. Um, but really, you've got to go back. Legit. I'm dead serious. you got to go back. And watch the 1970s version. Um, it's like, I don't know how many there are, like three or four, but it starts with A Thief in the Night. It's just, it's all crazy, terrible, terrible 70s nonsense, and you should definitely watch it. It's so bad. Does it foretell of the coming of Kirk Cameron? <laughs> I, I wish. <laughs> I actually really, I've only, I've only rewatched the first one recently. I want to go back and watch the second one. I think the one is like The Image of the Beast. Or, like, <laughs> something rises. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I do recall. So these were, these movies were, like, we watched them in Bible class in high school. And our Bible teacher was like, this is true. Like, these are historically accurate. Like, this is what could really happen according to the prophecy. And we're like, Ugh. And what kinds of images were in the movie? I mean, you know, it's all, it's all the stuff. Like, sh- food shortage and, you know, persecution for your belief because like the main character doesn't want to get the mark of the beast <laughs> and it's like a tattoo <laughs> and everybody else is is kind of like zombie like like you'll love the beast you'll love the mark of the beast just get it you'll be able to buy food but there's like no food and all that stuff and i think in the second one they get more into it I, there at one point at one point somebody is killed for not taking the mark and they're it's like a guillotine like they get their head chopped off shit yeah i have a important question is the mark of the beast actually a deathly hollows tattoo (laughs) it is surprise damn it remember when people were concerned that credit cards and then the chip and the credit cards were each like oh this is the mark of the beast this is how they track you new bit of technology is the mark of the beast yeah our phones are the mark of the beast 
Yeah. 100%. My vagina is the marking piece. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that. This is why you're not allowed to have children. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Just kidding. You can have all the babies you want. Yeah. <laughs> Hard pass. Um, <laughs> so that sounds like a really frightening thing to be exposed to as a child. Um, so, but we need to, I feel like, travel back in time. Are you? Travel back with me, Sarah, all the way back to the early church. And in this part one of a two-parter episode, we're going to talk more about the early and middle church and the concept of how the Antichrist came about and what people thought about that. And then episode two, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Antichrist in the modern day in pop culture and like what's going on, you guys. That's the one I'm really excited about. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, and you, you may not be surprised to know dear listeners, that it's kind of hard to find, like, proper scholarly research on the Antichrist. But you know what? We did it. Yeah, just Uh, Google Antichrist and see what we're talking about. (laughs) That's what we're stacked up against. It's a a lot of good scholarly debate, (laughs) raucous (laughs) theological debate. (laughs) Um, But we're going to be referencing Kevin L. Hughes's book, Constructing Antichrist, and Bernard McGinn's Antichrist, 2,000 Years of the Human Fascination with Evil. Yeah, and those were really good. If you have, like, deep dive questions about the Antichrist and tracking that concept through the millennia, that is, those are really good resources. Um, I really enjoyed uh, just getting in the meaty, the meaty bones of those books. So, so much meat. Um, So Kevin L. Hughes, in his book, Constructing Antichrist, points out that the early church focused on Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, And states in chapter 2, The day of the Lord approaches. Let no one persuade you in any way, unless the desertion will have come first, and the man of sin, the son of perdition, will have been revealed. The one who is opposed to and exalted above everything which is called God or which is worshipped, so that he may sit in the temple of God, displaying himself as if he were God. And then jumping forward a little bit. With the brilliance of Jesus' coming, he will destroy him whose coming is by the work of Satan in all power and with lying signs and prodigies. So God sent them a work of error that they may believe in the lie such that all those who have not believed in truth but have consented to iniquity may be judged. So this is sort of the basis of of a lot of where the thoughts on the Antichrist, the concept of the Antichrist comes from. Right. So, so to recap, you have this letter and a lot of different theories on whether Paul was actually, actually wrote it or not around 50 AD to the community in Thessalonica. And there's this question about whether Paul wrote it or not, because while apocalyptic or end times literature were part of Jewish writings at this time, they didn't really speculate about details regarding the end like they do in this book, um, this letter to Thessalonica. So in the first letter to the Thessalonians, the the tone was more about encouragement to stay strong against persecution that they were feeling. But in this second letter, there is the tone switches. It's it becomes way different, way more apocalyptic, um, way, kind of like ominous almost. Right. 
Basically, as McGinn noted, just as Jesus faced opposition during his lifetime, and just as his followers were now experiencing hatred and persecution, they soon came to believe that the returning God-man would have to encounter the epitome of human opposition to goodness in order to realize the fullness of his reign on earth. So they're going to have to, as they're starting to get this persecution, experience this, it's going to be sort of like the forces of good and evil, but there's going to be this human-like character that will be sort of a culmination of that evil, a, a sort of antichrist, right? The, the foil to Jesus. Sarah, what do you think the enemy of goodness is? Anyone fun, anything fun is the goodness, of, is the yeah. enemy of goodness. You're against it. Yeah. I like it. I, um... I'm a big fan of the enemy of goodness. Yeah. On account of all of the all the best things are debaucherous in some way. Is this delicious uh, Evan Williams that we're sipping on? Is that the enemy of goodness? Uh, I think to teetotalers it is. To to the, to yeah. the people in this. To the people we're talking about. Yeah. To us, it's a Holy Spirit. It is. It is. <laughs> it's like it's 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 the um it's my life water. I would yes. say. <laughs> It's what really keeps me going. It's your communion. It's it your is. It is. Yes, yes. Pizza and bourbon are mm. my my. Tastes like Jesus. <laughs> yeah, the body and the, the body and the spirit mm-hmm. and the blood. Body mm-hmm. and the blood. I I agree. Yeah. Agree to agree. Uh-huh. So Hughes notes that some in the centuries after this writing. Uh, the, Thessal- the letter to the Thessalonians, uh, there were several strains of interpretation about the apocalypse or impending end of things. In one, there is the apocalyptic realist camp who viewed the Antichrist as an actual historical person who will come. Some uh, persecuting people like Nero or Diocletian, right, could hint at this coming. It could be Nero or Diocletian, right, or maybe they're a precursor to the Antichrist. Um, But there will be that actual Antichrist coming, a person working for the will of Satan against Jesus and all that is good in the world. In the Middle Ages, however, this shifted as the church gained more power, right? They weren't being persecuted anymore. The Christians were now the ones in power. So Pope Gregory the Great, or not so great, as you'll remember from our Mary Magdalene episode, blended apocalyptic realism with the tension between temporal or earthly powers and the church as the church was vying for real power in the world. So less this historical antichrist now and more like earthly powers are evil, church is great, and you should just give us more money and power, unchecked. Right, so these... uh... These persecuting people, Nero, Diocletian, Pope Gregory, these are all these are all like governmental figures, right? Mm-hmm. These are all mm-hmm. people in a governmental power. And the church is coming in and saying, we want to take some of that power. Right. And so um, we're going to create a narrative that backs that up, right? So um, this early belief that the Antichrist is coming, and there's this element now of the church later on, um, like midway through the first millennia, it's more about fights between the church and the nations who are intertwined and fighting for power. So, so this struggle like just sort of keeps going on, right? Mm-hmm. This should give, um, this should just be a giant public service announcement for the separation of church and state, being as the church can excommunicate and call anyone the Antichrist, like, oh, you didn't want to submit to the church. Are those horns on your head? Like, come on, you guys. Like, please, let's just keep them separate, okay? Also, can we tax the church? Ooh, that's a good idea. Like, 
That, we need to tax the church. Uh, you know who actually, uh, a re- apparently in the last Democratic debate, uh, Beto O'Rourke was in favor of that. Really? But specifically was in favor of taxing churches that were not in favor of, that were like discriminating churches. Oh. So, uh, which is, I, I actually kind of think it should be, uh, I don't know. I, I am, I, my, my stance on this is very complicated because nonprofits have uh, tax exemptions and right. technically churches are nonprofits. But I don't necessarily think that ministers should, so ministers get their ta- their housing allowance mm-hmm. written off and not taxed, and I don't actually agree with that. Yeah, I mean we we should probably like yeah, then maybe another separate. But yeah. there's a there's, but there's a lot a of whole lot of implications about tax yeah. status in churches. That's a, actually a carryover right from this time, right when things were not separate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. For sure. Anyway, anywho's good point, Sarah. Um. <laughs> Per use. Uh, okay, so later on in the Middle Ages, you have writers like Peter Lombard who reject the realist approach in favor of a more scholastic approach where the concept of the Antichrist is more internal and psychological and doesn't want to speculate on who or when a historical Antichrist would come, right? Not the realist version, but more internal and psychological. After this, people choose to follow either a more, oh shit, Antichrist is coming, this is a historical, realistic event, or let's talk about this metaphorically, right, internally and psychologically approach, and everything in between, right? It's almost like there is a, a, like a continuum, and there really isn't a consensus anymore after this. So the further on into the Middle Ages you go, it's this continuum. Well, I mean, right, like it just makes sense, like church leaders strategically can't consent to this being metaphorical because then it opens up the rest of the Bible to be metaphorical. Mm, that's you know? a great point. And so, so like, they just kind of, their, their hands are kind of tied in, in so far as it's like, to not do that, it doesn't mesh with their political agenda. That's, yeah. So, like, would you say, just to unpack that a little bit, like, every time they makes a sort of interpretation about something it opens them up for to take a hit on something else if it's like oh we're interpreting this differently then what about that if this is a metaphor then what about uh you know worship or like respecting earthly powers what if that's just a metaphor and we don't have to do that right and i think also like at this time we have to remember that the church at this time is still very hierarchical and very catholic Mm -hmm. and so there isn't there isn't any kind of gray area where people can interpret. So the church leaders are constantly, I would imagine, constantly having to consider different angles. Like how we've got a message to them and we can't, we need it to be like very clear so that they can't ask a question. Yeah. And literacy rates are so low at that point. Right. And And they're doing like all the services of Latin and some people... Yeah, they're intentionally speak yeah. some of these languages, so it's just kind of like totally inaccessible. So they're having to like package and present in ways that they get uh, not a lot of riff raff right. right back at them. They right. want to stay in power. Exactly. Yeah. Um, which brings us to the Reformation. Yes. When Protestant factions split from the Catholics, um, you know, Martin Luther, the father of the Lutheran denomination, took it to a whole nother fucking level. 
Um, I mean, everybody knows about his 95 thesis that he nailed on the door of the Wittenberg Church. It was a huge, huge religious moment. It was and a whole mood. It was a whole, <laughs> the whole deal. <laughs> um, but there's more to the story. Well, early criticisms of the Pope may have said certain popes were antichrist, Mo- Martin Luther was like, the whole papacy is the antichrist, which is wild, y'all. Crazy. Um, previously, there had been a focus on Jews being the Antichrist because because we can't, there's, it, why do the Jews get blamed for everything? Literally every fucking thing. It's I, ridiculous. It's insane. Anyways, um, so there had been a focus on Jews being the Antichrist or having something to do with the Antichrist. And while many of the reformers were still anti-Semitic, they turned the focus inward to the office of the Pope. So Luther's original issue with the Pope had to do with this idea that the Pope authorized the selling of indulgences, which were basically just pieces of paper you could buy to stay out of purgatory or the unpleasant waiting room for your soul after death. Um, I, I think I think most of our listeners know about indulgences, but it, it is it is a whole, you know, money changers at the temple kind of situation where they are literally just selling just selling nothing they're selling insurance they're selling a kind of like security a nonsense security for your afterlife right right i can just picture jesus like walking in with a giant sledgehammer and being like no (laughs) not okay so luther was a hundred percent right calling that part out there were some things that he said that were um a, a lot a lot he was uh yeah you don't have to look too far into luther's writings to realize that he was an extremist about a lot of things. He was right in terms of that being bad and that being an indication of how corrupt the church had gotten, for sure. Um, so Luther saw this 100% as being uh, this outward-facing indicator of how corrupt the church was. And we want to go into sort of some quotes that Bernard began recounts of what Martin Luther said. Okay, so here's some some quotes, some fun quotes. Now, the Romanists have allowed the devil to rule them so completely that they have maintained that the Pope is above the angels in heaven and has them at his command. These are certainly the proper works of the real Antichrist. End quote. Next quote. The papacy is indeed nothing but the kingdom of Babylon and of the true Antichrist, end quote. He also hilariously had illustrated tracks made that looked like early comic books that were against the Pope and also show the Pope being birthed out of and feeding on poop. (laughs) Right? I love this. This shows that poop is funny even to supposedly, like, serious old white theologians. Poop's hilarious. Poop is hilarious. I mean, it's disgusting, but it's hilarious. I like that it drove the point home. He's like, you know what? You may or may not know about the concept of the Antichrist, but look, he's he's sitting in poop. (laughs) I don't know if you can read, but look, poop. He's dirty. Poop. (laughs) That Pope is dirty as shit. Yeah. Yeah, he is. (laughs) (laughs) So... In England, after Henry VIII rebelled against the Pope and started his own church in order to bone Anne Boleyn of the wide-birthing hips. (laughs) I think that's actually a Simpsons quote. I'm not sure. I love that. (laughs) The wide-birthing hips. 
and divorce his first wife, Catherine. That's actually her family motto. <laughs> the, the, <wiper. laughs> the whole reason why those dresses that have like the bustle is because, because of her. <laughs> is because she's like, I gotta, I gotta hide this. Yeah, and then this, it became a whole court fashion. It's just a whole fashion now. <laughs> I love it. She, it was actually like. It was actually like a bone density problem. It wasn't, it's not funny. <laughs> We're just like, ah. People are going to be Googling this. Is that true? <laughs> it's not. It's not. Super true. When she had babies, she just had to like do a wide stance and they just <laughs> fell right out. <laughs> Accurate. Anyways. Um, and divorced his first wife, Catherine. The Reformation kept going further, and by the time his daughter Elizabeth I came to power, Anabaptists, Quakers, and Puritans were super pissed about how corrupt the Church of England was. So then the Antichrist was a monarch or a certain bishop. Basically, the Antichrist was whoever was in power and potentially misusing it, which is kind of the whole deal, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, that's that is the whole anxiety about the Antichrist is that there's going to be this, like, this one ruler to rule them all. And that person, as we know, power corrupts. It's like the Lord of the Rings. It is. It is. And but if Gollum got the ring. <laughs> which Gollum oh, no, if, if, uh, no, if, uh, um, um, fucking Gandalf's other, Gandalf's. Oh, Saruman? If Saruman got the ring. Yeah. And so there would be this kind of, like, false... Yeah. False security in the first three years, three and a half years, and then and then just Chaos. shit, it's just shit, shit, just absolute shit. Yeah. So um, you don't want Saruman to get the ring. You don't want Saruman to get the ring, and so um, and so I think that that's like a common theme that you see throughout all these interpretations is like just real anxiety about how much power the government has. Absolutely, and when basically from the time of Henry VIII on, the king or queen of England became the head of the church. Mm-hmm. So that was real... Real whole, fucked up. Real fucked up, right? <laughs> so you have, like, a total, like, merging of state and church, and people are getting real, like, antsy. Yeah. Which is, you know... Fair. Totally fair. And the whole reason that church was even founded, you know, as accurate as a lot of the... Uh, Reformers, I think, were in some of their uh, critiques, shall we say, of the Catholic Church. That that the whole reason that church was founded was just because he wanted to bone another lady. And so, like, come on, like, we'd all be in the streets being like, seriously, like that's fucked up, dude. Like, just whatever. But also, fuck the power of sex. The power of sex. And actually, it wasn't just sex. It was anxiety over his lineage. He was trying to get that boy. He's he was trying, trying to, to birth that boy. boy. Right, because he dumped her, like... Yeah. Well, and by dumped her, he dumped her head <laughs> right after... Was, she was, like, one of seven or something, right? Uh, it's, uh, what is it? It's divorce, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded, survived. It was six wives. Six. He died while married to the sixth one. Yeah. And he got, he got a... They just got a girl baby. He got a girl from Catherine, a girl that was, that was, uh, Mary... Um, Mary, no, Mary Queen of Scots is the cousin of, um, the cousin of Elizabeth. Okay. Um, it, but Mary, Bloody Mary, she became, she was the Catholic monarch that, um, 
she was persecuting the Protestants. And then her sister, Elizabeth, who was Anne Boleyn's daughter, was uh, a Protestant. So then she came to power after that. And then uh, all this happened because the boy, I think, I want to say Jane Seymour was his third or the fourth actress? No, no, Yes, the actress. She's a time traveler. Um, <laughs> gave birth to Edward. And Edward was only in power for like a year and died like he was young. And so that's why the girls came to power because they was still men. Men came first and yeah, at that point. Of course. So, yeah. Also, how do you remember all this stuff? I am stupid interested in history. Like, I love history, especially this time period. It's a weird time period. It is. It's it's so wacky. Like, it's just, there's so much going on, and it's all a fucking soap opera. Yeah. Like, it's, I think that's why it all just presents itself as a narrative soap opera to me. And I really got into the Tudors. <laughs> this is the show. <laughs> if you want to know more about this, watch the Tudors. It's, is that, it's like, is that historically accurate? It is decently historically accurate. There are some inaccuracies in it, but there is a lot of accuracies as well. So you definitely want to, like, Google every episode and make sure you got it right, and they smushed a lot of it together, but you get a general idea. Got it. Yeah. So um, we've talked a lot about England just now. Let's boop over to Russia. (laughs) And uh, Peter the Great, uh, basically Russia had their own thing going on, but then they had a monarch called Peter the Great who decided to adopt a lot of Western reforms that he liked from Europe. And the old guard Russian Orthodox Christians were like, oh, look, it's the Antichrist because he's put it in the newfangled ways. And McGinn notes that Russia had and still has a robust mythology on the Antichrist because they were, like, super suspicious of Peter. And it just kind of came out of that. That's so fascinating that, like, they took – well, okay, the Russian Orthodox Christians then had in their canon – apocalyptic literature yes and i admittedly don't know as much about that okay because i mean that's just interesting that um yeah they have separate sort of mythology i do know they have separate total mythologies about the antichrist as well Ooh. and actually um he w- he made the point that russia might have the strongest um like to this day just seeped into their secular culture mm-hmm. uh, motifs on the antichrist because of because of how strong it was. Well, I mean, I think that a, like a lot of those Eastern Eastern Orthodox mm-hmm. um, religions. I mean, it's all like Catholic based, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, there was like a schism in the one like one thousand. What is it like? Something. One thousand eighty eight, something ages. Yeah, like a millennia ago, and so the Catholic Church split, but it still looks very Catholic to Protestant eyes. Yeah. Right. There's still a lot of tradition yeah. that is wrapped up in there. And, and, and it's, and it's interesting because it is like, you can be culturally like, just like you're culturally Jewish or you're culturally whatever, right. which I don't think we really have out here. Like I want to describe myself as culturally Baptist. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But you, it's, religion is so enmeshed with these much older mm-hmm. countries right. that you can be culturally identified with a religion. That makes sense. You know what I mean? And also you're not like, if you were to pluck someone out of that and put them in a different culture, they would definitely, because if you like, let's say you were to be plucked out of America, right? And put, which is not a Christian nation. I don't believe that, but I think people are trying to make it thus. Um, 
but the fact that you were so steeped in it, like if you moved, if you picked up and moved to, let's say, I don't know, a Buddhist, a country that was predominantly Buddhist or right. Muslim, right? Then you would probably still be somewhat on the Christian calendar, even though you're not Christian. Right. Anymore, right. Yeah. Like you'd be like, oh, it's Christmas time. Yeah. No one's celebrating, but maybe I'll like sing a carol to myself or like watch a Christmas movie. <laughs> Something like kind of secular, you know, but still marking time in yeah. a similar way. Yeah. Who knows? Anyways. Anywho's. That's neither here nor there. Neither here nor there. That's how we do. Um, so, back to Russia um, and McGinn. And uh, so Catholics responded to the accusations of the Pope being the Antichrist by either saying, well, what if Martin Luther is the Antichrist? Just turn it around. Yeah, I mean, like... Well, what if you're the anti Yeah, just... I mean, like, that's what you do. It's like, uh... <laughs> I'm rubber and you're glue. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are, but what am I? Yeah. <laughs> A fart face. Yeah. <laughs> but, but also, Catholic theologians and the Cardinal, Robert Bellarmine? Bellarmine. Bellarmine. Yeah, which, uh, interestingly, sidebar to Robert Bellarmine, there is um, a couple of my friends uh, attended Bellarmine uh, University, which is actually here in Louisville, um, named after him. So So who is Cardinal Robert Bellarmine? He was a Catholic theologian and cardinal. (laughs) Literally, all I know about him, and he 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 wrote... a lot during this period, the Protestant Reformation. You've really painted a picture for us. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm very descriptive. He was a, he was a man. He was, a, I assume, a white man. He was a white man. He was awesome. I now see and him. he was Catholic. He was a cardinal and a theologian. Awesome. And now, and he has a university in his name. Yes. Awesome. Anyway, so... Leading the charge, Robert Bellarmine leading the charge, mm-hmm. reframed the concept of the Antichrist as being a more future event at the end of history, which was essentially recycling Augustine's view from the early church. Yeah, which, uh, so he's recycling this back to the forefront, but it kind of um, helped to make a more, uh, shall we say, a scholastic or scholarly argument that, oh, hey, uh, this is not... We can't just go around calling each other the Antichrist. Like, it's going to be... He kicked the can down the road, at least. Like, let's stop, Let's cut this out. Like, this is not helping anything. So was he So was he the first to be like, this is a prophecy of, of, of future events? No. Uh, I think he just... He was the first one after a while to... Uh, of people being like, no, it's, it's, it's this guy, or it's this guy, or it's this whole office, or whatever... To be like, slow your roll, people. Like, let's worry less about pointing fingers and let's say it's going to happen way in the future. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just kind of, I guess, took it down a notch. Do you think he was doing that intentionally? Like, yeah, for sure. Like, But intentionally to quell, like, yeah. cultural uh, yeah, anxiety? Yeah, I mean, I think he was definitely someone who uh, was writing to sort of Calm, to calm anxiety and also kind of chill out the Protestant Reformation. Because if you write, I mean, it's very politically savvy to, to make an, 
argument like that if someone's going for your leader. Right. To kind of, like, yeah. lull. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I read some of what he said, and it was way more reasonable. And on paper, it looks more reasonable than what Martin Luther was saying, even though what Martin Luther was calling out was super corrupt. Right. But Martin Luther's like, Mah! like, angry, <laughs> right? And he's just like, he's coming for everybody. He's coming for everybody's wigs. Like, he's just... Like, <laughs> but, like, he said a lot of he said a lot of things that were true and i think martin luther was very savvy in terms of i think martin luther wins the argument at the, at the end of the day just because of how he he was he was very funny and he also was able to say things in very plain language and not make these heady arguments that like bellerman was making right even though like Bellarmine was probably correct, more correct in terms of being like, hey, nobody here is the Antichrist right now. Like, let's just, in terms of if they're looking for one. My personal view, this is sliding a little bit into a little bit more conversation, is I think you can talk about an Antichrist. Like, people being, people working for the opposite of philosophy of what Jesus would have stood for. Mm -hmm. Like, I think Donald Trump is absolutely an Antichrist. Yeah. For sure. Um... So would the Pope, huh? Putin Putin and Antichrist. Putin Putin on the Ritz. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Was the Pope at the time selling indulgences on Antichrist? Yes. I think so. I don't, was he the Antichrist who's got like horns and shit? Like, no. That's a little too literal for me. But I don't, at the end of the day... I don't know. I think I think you need both. I think you need both Bellarmine, like, being like, hey, this dude doesn't have horns, and then, like, Martin Luther being like, this is fucked up. Right, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So. So. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to, cl- uh, we're going to close this, um, but... Just know that as we are kind of closing this episode, that Puritans, Anabaptists, and Quakers and others are super mad at the Church of England, and they are going to invade the New World and start shenanigans there uh, in the American colonies. This is our prophecy for next episode. Yes, they're going to do it. It's our past-future prophecy. (laughs) So tune in next time for Antichrist in America. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Um... And everyone, thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you could share your favorite episode with a friend, we would really appreciate it. We're trying to um, broaden our audience. And also, just, you know, make friends, build community. Yeah, oh my God. We're like, pretend it's like a fireside chat. We're just going to listen to us next to the fire with a friend. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe (laughs) offer them a glass of tea or bourbon. Bourbon. Yeah. Or scotch. 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 Scotch is good for around a fire. It's true. It is. Mossy. Yeah. And you can find our episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Um, you can also toss us questions over on Twitter at Bible Bitches or on our Bible Bitches fan page on Facebook. Yep. And um, we want to give a big shout out. Thanks to Engage Gays for hosting our podcast. Of course, at Aaron Doodles, um, who does our artwork, and Yo Eves for our intro and outro music. We've had, I finally got to meet Aaron from Aaron Doodles this weekend for the first time in person, and he is lovely. Isn't and it's he? so fun. He's so precious. We love him. Yeah, we do. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.